Our text this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 4. So if you'll turn there with me, please. John, chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 42. And this is essentially part two of the story we talked about last week with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and Jesus' interaction with her. And we're going to see the the conclusion of that story as we see now kind of a shift to where Jesus is speaking with his disciples and then kind of what goes on in the town as the woman goes into there. So as we come to this text, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help with it. Lord, as we come to uh, this scripture today, we recognize our need to call upon the writer of the scripture to help us, to walk us through it, to guide us, uh, not only because of our lack of understanding, but because of our proclivity to uh, make them our own words, to make them about us and our well-being and our good, and as opposed to your glory and your magnificence, your truth. And so, Lord, help us to see your glory Help us to desire to glorify you as we read this text, as we understand these words. Help us to want to glorify you in this world, to see your kingdom go forward. Convict us of our sin. Lead us to the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read this passage, I um, it made me think often of this word, sidetracked. It's a word that we use a lot. The disciples kind of get sidetracked in this passage, so it made me think of what the word actually meant. I'm a biology teacher, and a lot of the words that I use every day are, mean something else in another language, and so I often wonder why words mean what they do. And so I looked up this word sidetracked, <clears throat> and it literally refers to this sidetrack that runs along the side of a main track, think like, like railroad cars. And it was there to organize a railroad car, you know, an actual train, because they kind of ran one direction or the other, and it wasn't easy to take them off the tracks. And so they would have these side tracks in order to position the cars and get them on, get them lined up correctly so that they could go. And so for an engine to mistakenly get sidetracked, this could, this is a detour that could cost them lots of hours, which in the railroad business is lots of money. That's never a good thing if you're in that business, I guess. And so I think that we can all relate then to this idea of being sidetracked. You know, I was even delving into the what does sidetracked mean. I got sidetracked from writing my sermon. Spent me a couple hours just reading about railroad cars and stuff. It's pretty much the standard for me every week. Um, but we understand what it means to be off task. We understand what it means to ask questions and to have nothing that have nothing to do with the subject at hand, and nothing to do with our task, because we're human. And I think, for better or worse, this is just part of our condition. We get sidetracked very easily. We want to know things. We're curious. That's okay. But in today's passage, we're going to see the disciples get a little bit sidetracked as they are interacting with Jesus, and after Jesus's visit to the woman at the well. Uh, the disciples have been with Jesus now for a little while, and so they have to know he's a man on a mission. They have to know ultimately why he was sent, at least at some level, 
And they also had to know that Jesus is a thinker. He asks questions and he probes and he wants to know because he knows the heart of man. He loves his people. And even though they know this, they miss wide on what's going on here and this point that Jesus is trying to make regarding the Samaritan woman. And so Jesus is gracious to them. He shows them what he's saying and what he means. And he shows us, I think, what it, what it means to see the kingdom of God go forth, what it means that the fields are white with the harvest. We say that a lot in Christianity, but this actually shows us what that means. So as we come to this passage today, we're going to look at two points, and that's the mission of Christ in concept or conceptually, and then we're actually going to see the mission of Christ in application as he's doing it and as he's going about that mission. So as we look at that, let's look at the text, John chapter 4, 27 through 42. Let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's word. John chapter 4, starting at verse 27, says this. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, why do you seek? Or... Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away to the town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit, rejoice that and Uh, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For, For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. So, we have to remember from last week where we were, we met this unnamed Samaritan woman. We read about her contact with her creator, with Jesus Christ. We saw how he cut through her attempt to hide from him, how he dealt directly with her need, which is the same for all of us, the same need for all people, redemption. And he dealt directly with that. And so now enter the disciples. Remember, they had 
they had went away to the city to get food, and here they come back. And when they come back, they apparently catch the tail end of this conversation that, that Jesus is having with the Samaritan woman. And it seems that they are starting to get it somewhat. You notice even the apostle tells us that they didn't ask, uh, what, what does it say? They, they didn't ask, what do you seek? Or what are you talking about? They didn't really ask about his interaction with the woman. Apparently this would have been a normal thing to ask because John makes sure and tells us, hey, we didn't even ask that. They show up just in time for the woman to drop her water jar, which is the whole reason she was coming to the well in the first place, so that she could run to town and tell the news of her story. The Messiah is here. He actually knows everything about me. He told me all I ever did. Think of the ramifications of this woman saying that out loud to the whole town. He told me all I ever did, and he still wanted to talk to me. And he still made sure that I knew that he was my redeemer. And now I want to tell you. So imagine the townspeople. They're in their shops. They're doing their normal town thing. And they can see this woman is, run, woman is running into the town and, and being out in public talking about a man who had spoke to her and said nice things about her, nice things to her. So, of course, the town would want to see what all this ruckus was about because they knew who this woman was. They knew about her. Then verse 30 says, here they come. They're coming out to see him now. And so you can imagine what's going on. This is an incredible story. And just when we think the disciples are starting to kind of nail down this whole following Jesus thing, here comes the town people. Woman runs to the t to the town, shares her the truth. They come to Jesus, and the disciples say, "Rabbi, eat." They kind of missed the boat there. I mean, sure they're concerned about Jesus's welfare, but they're missing the point of what's going on. And Jesus is gracious to them. And if you're keeping track, this is the fourth time in John's Gospel that folks aren't quite sure what Jesus is getting at, aren't quite sure what he's saying. You know, the first time he said that he could rebuild the temple in three days, and they said, well, it took us 46 years to build this. What do you mean? The second time he talked about being born again, and Nicodemus was like, what do you mean? Like, enter into my mother's womb again? Is that, is that what you're talking about? And the woman even asking, well, there's water that I have to give you that will that will give you satisfaction for the rest of your life. And she says, what, you don't even have a bucket to get water. How are you going to get it? The well's deep. And now Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And what do they do? Who gave him food? We just came back with the food. And so that brings us to this first point, the mission of Christ in concept. So imagine, again, this really exciting moment. The disciples are trying to push food on Jesus rather than understand what's going on. Uh, in all likelihood, Jesus probably hadn't eaten in some time. They'd been traveling across the desert, and Jesus was thirsty, he was tired. Uh, and he corrects them kind of cryptically at first, saying that, that he has food that they don't know about, which is kind of Jesus' way. Um, and now, they should have probably picked up on this that Jesus normally speaks this way, that what he's saying is kind of hinting at something else much deeper. But they begin saying, well, did you give him food? Because I didn't give him any food. And they kind of have this internal conversation with one another. And Jesus kind of dispels the conversation 
my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And as Jesus normally does, he says one thing kind of cryptically, and then the next time he says it again, it's very plain, very well, or very easy for us to understand. I've come to do the will of my Father who sent me to accomplish his work. And what is that? We read it this morning in our call to worship, but I want you to turn there with me again. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, we're going to look at the first four verses. This is one of those passages you should kind of keep bookmarked as you're reading and studying through a gospel because it keeps you mindful of why it was that Jesus came and what he meant to preach and kind of what he was doing on earth while he was here in particular. It says this, Isaiah 61, first four verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall, be, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Think about Israel. Think about their many devastations and their generations of turning away from the Lord. And this is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, to undo all of that, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set free the captives. This is what he's sent to do. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus stood up in the synagogue and read this passage out loud and said, this passage has been, today, has been fulfilled today in your hearing, meaning this passage is about me. And isn't this exactly what he did with this woman? Didn't he just set this captive free? Did he not just proclaim good news to the poor? Did he not just make the blind to see? And as this woman's walking away, I mean, you can imagine this overwhelming sense of Jesus the man. This overwhelming sense of, I mean, it made me think of this, the lyrics to Joy to the World. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The curse had definitely set itself upon this woman, and now she's set free. She's running into the town to, sh to share with others what she has been, what she's heard. She's been liberated completely. She went from hiding at the well at noon to running into the town yelling so everyone can hear. She's been liberated. This is what Jesus does. This is what he was doing. I mean, the curse of sin was being undone right before his eyes. This is the work the Father sent him to do. You can imagine Jesus' spirit at this time. And his disciples are thinking about food. So how are we like the disciples in this situation? Think for a minute all the good things that we involve ourselves in. 
that aren't directly or indirectly tied to the kingdom of God going forward. Wanting to feed Jesus was a really good thing. Even further, consider those things which could be tied to seeing the kingdom go forward, yet we choose to make them just mundane parts of our lives. We choose to separate our Christian lives from these other different parts of our lives that we've called mundane or unimportant. I mean, there are lots of good things in our lives that could be used to see the kingdom of God go forward, yet we choose to keep them mundane rather than use them. Now, I'll give you an example of my own failing in this area. Um, as you guys know, and you've heard me talk, I play lots of nerd games. And one of those nerd games is called Magic the Gathering. Not not like sorcery or anything. It's just cards. Just a card game. Don't Don't kill me. All right, it's just a card game, and there's lots of local tournaments and things for this game I've been playing since, like, 93, 94, when I was a kid. And so I would go, as a youth pastor, I would go to these local tournaments, and I've, I've done it even here in Murray a couple of times. And you walk into one of these places, and you can probably guess the sorts of people that are in there. I'm not one of those that you would probably guess would be in there, like this grown man who's well-dressed, and then they got all these kids. And the kids are, like, wearing these T-shirts that say kind of crazy things, and I went one time, and a kid had, like, actually had rosary beads on, because I think wearing rosary beads is popular now, even if you're not Catholic, I think kids just wear them for whatever reason. Um, kids having t-shirts that had uh, anti-Christian things on them, kids talking about religion, because religion is in the uh, conversation of our society now, usually as a derogatory thing, and Lots of this types of things, like like little hooks hanging off the wall that I should have grabbed a hold of, but I just chose to play magic instead. When I could have been seeing the kingdom of God go forward, I chose to make some just something that could have been very good, and I chose to remain mundane and just play a game. What did Jesus say? The fields are white, meaning they are ready to be picked. Look at verse 35. The fields are white. Don't you say there's four months and then the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What is he talking about? The town coming to him. The town is coming to him. They're coming to the disciples. They want to know what's going on. The field is white for the harvest. There are people that are interested in hearing and seeing these things. The field is white for the harvest. What else does he say? The ground has been laid. It's already been done for us. There's a saying that holds true, one sows and another reaps. Our society is full of these things that are Christian. These kids, I mean, people know, the, the kids at that store knew. They obviously knew about Christianity. They were wearing lots of anti-Christian things. One of them had rosary beads on. They obviously knew about Christianity. The, the seeds had been planted. And he says, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What could we do then? What is he talking about? What do we need to do? We need to see every moment of our lives like Jesus saw this interaction at the well. Like Jesus saw these people as they were coming towards him. There are no mundane moments. Every moment is an opportunity 
to let someone know that there is a Redeemer and Jesus is His name. Every single person is a woman at the well with a story a mile long. I shared this story at my high school this week. I'm the FCA coordinator and I get to preach the gospel once a week, which is fantastic. And I shared this with them. And every kid there could relate. They understand. They're a, they're a woman at the well themselves sometimes. And they know 15 other kids that, that are just like this woman at the well. A story a mile long. A story that they probably think would prohibit them from being loved and accepted or being valued. And it's in these moments that we have an opportunity as ambassadors of Christ to speak life into them. To offer them something that never runs out. A spring of living water that they can always drink from. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here are the disciples still trying to figure this out. And they would eventually learn it. Read the book of Acts. Just read through it. I mean, they learned it. They learned that even beggars standing by the temple, which were there by the hundreds probably, are nothing mundane, and they offered this, this man the gospel, and he jumped to his feet in excitement. See that in Acts 3. Or even Peter staying at the house of a tanner, which would have been kind of an odd thing for a Jewish man to do, in the city of Joppa, would lead to a spiritual awakening among the Gentiles, because he began to see every opportunity as an opportunity to preach the gospel. There were no more mundane things. There's no such thing, actually, as a mundane occurrence if we really believe in the providence of God because there's no such thing as a chance meeting. Every appointment is a divine appointment. And we have to see that the harvest is plentiful. The fields are white. We live in a time when Christianity is almost always in the news in some way or form. Um, people have very strong opinions about Christianity, about churches, about Christians in general. One way or the other, typically, there's not a lot of gray anymore. And so it doesn't take very much for us to get into a spiritual conversation with believers, to strengthen them. It's a good thing to talk for believers to talk to one another, even if they don't know one another. For non-believers, because they need the gospel. I mean, they all have opinions. What's the difference? We have the truth. We have the answers right here. It's not ours. It's the Lord's. We get to share it. The great part about it is that someone has already gone ahead and did the work, as Jesus suggests here. What is he talking about? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 1. We need to be reminded of this sometimes. Ephesians chapter 1, just quickly. It's a passage I know we're all familiar with. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Why do I know that I can talk about the gospel with people and it, and it be effective? And it be effectual as we read in our professional faith this morning. Look at verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What does that mean? That those are there are those out there whom the Lord has elected unto salvation that don't know him. He has sent us to reap for things that we have not labored, the work that he has done for us. Redemption has been won on the cross. Redemption was won in his resurrection. 
We need to only tell them that there is a Redeemer, and Jesus Christ is his name. Because what did Jesus tell us about a sheep? The sheep know him. They hear his voice. They will come running. And we have this glorious job of getting to do the fun part in that. Getting to tell the story of Jesus. Getting to see all of the reward in that. I mean, he's seen to it that our work will be fruitful. That's incredible. Because of the work that he did while he was here. And the work that he is doing even now. Because even now, the Holy Spirit of God goes out and makes his word have effect. He makes his word return to him and it's having completed its task. We need only be faithful to the task of preaching and teaching it. Seeing those whom he has come to save call upon his name. And here's the catch. We don't know who they are. You know, I think we're often accused of knowing who the elect are. We don't know who they are. So what do we get to tell? Everybody. Who do we get to offer the free offer of the gospel to? Everybody. We aren't Jesus. We don't know to make a detour through Sychar on our way to Galilee so that we can talk to a woman at the well. We don't know that that's what we're supposed to do. So we talk to everybody. I think there are those times when you could say, and I could say definitely, that we've, we've had it laid on our hearts to share with a particular person. For whatever reason, the Lord does that sometimes. But all in all, our message should be to all of those who we come in contact with. Everybody's a woman at the well. Everyone has a story that would want them to call, that would want them to run and hide to seek refuge in something other than Jesus Christ. But we have the answer. We can be agents of redemption that He's called us to called us to be. We need to remember nothing's mundane. Embrace every situation He puts in front of us as those that have been directly appointed by our Creator for a particular purpose. And so second point is that the mission of Christ, we're going to see the application of the mission of Christ here. And let's look at verse 39, this passage. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. That was her testimony. And this initially what led them to believe pretty incredible i think we could spend hours and hours crafting our testimony to make sure it's you know solid and good and i think there's there's a lot of good in that it's a good task but this woman right out of the gate ran out and said he told me everything about me he knows everything and he's he's the messiah and he he wants to know us it's a good thing and so having heard this they believed and then what did they want they asked jesus to stay there with them for two days and I think this is, I see this all the time. You see a new believer, they want to just soak it all up. Here comes Jesus. Here's the, the actual Savior of the world in person. Please, stay with us a couple of days. This is a natural thing for a new believer to want to do. They go from not knowing Jesus at all, thinking they're their own Savior, to wanting to spend all the time with them they can. It's a good thing. And so, of course, he stays with them. It says he continued to teach them. And he taught them course what did he come to teach concerning the gospel concerning the kingdom of god and it says that many more believed and and what they said should encourage us look at verse 42 
They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This should encourage us. This wasn't like a a put-down of the woman's testimony at all. This was an encouragement to her, because now we've heard for ourselves what you were saying. They will believe when we preach the gospel. Because what is the gospel? It is the power of salvation. There is no other. However, why will they continue to believe? Does it have to do with our continued persuasiveness? Does it have to do with our continual effectiveness of sharing our testimony and getting the word out? No. They will continue to believe because of their continued, react, of their continued interaction with the Savior himself. And I think many times we want our own words to be so persuasive and so perfect that we really do think that our own ability to articulate the gospel is the difference between a person's belief or unbelief. And that's not true. It's the Savior who changes the hearts of men and women. Our testimonies can be as inarticulate as this woman's. He told me all I ever did. They heard that and they believed even though it was filled with emotion, even though it was not very articulate, because it was the Savior who made that belief real to them. And it was from Him that their belief was solidified. We don't have to be worried about the result of our testimony and our sharing the gospel, because we ultimately can't influence the outcome because we're not God. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't train diligently. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't read and know and study and want to be articulate. Absolutely, we should want to do that. We should want to be that. And we should want to be convincing. But not so that we can be more convincing ourselves and somehow win ourselves, but so that we can bring glory to God, so that we can represent Him well. Our ability is made effectual. Because of the work of the one who sowed the seeds to begin with, who wrote the law on the hearts of men, who chose his own from the foundations of the world, who goes out even now seeking after them. And so we need only be faithful to the charge to go out into the fields. They are still white with a harvest, and we need only go out and reap that harvest. In conclusion, this is the gospel of the kingdom, and only that that can save men and women. So if you're wondering, if you're still wondering about that, how can I be saved? If you're here and you don't know, kids, you don't know, it is Jesus Christ alone. It is not your good works. It is not your parents' good works. It is not coming to church that's going to save you. It is Jesus Christ alone. And you have to call upon his name and believe in him, and he will save you. So like this woman, like the people of this town, you can know your Redeemer. You can be saved. Call upon his name. And for us Christians, for us believers, let us remember that our Lord goes before us. If he didn't, it'd be horrible. It'd be scary. But he goes before us, and he has made it so that the fields are white with the harvest, and they will be that way until he comes back. 
and so let us go into the fields together, hand in hand, reaping this harvest, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, I think oftentimes we are the disciples. Uh, We don't really know what's going on, or we, we try to think we know what's going on, and we're confused. But at the end of the day, Lord, you are calling people to yourself. You are calling people to yourself even now through the preaching of the word, through the testimonies of the saints. And so, Lord, help us to see, to lift up our eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. There are no mundane appointments. It wasn't by accident that you met this woman at the well. It's not by accident that we meet the people in our lives as we go about our day. And so, Lord, help us to share the gospel of peace so that they may know that you are their creator, that you are their God, that you are their savior. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.